0: Hello and welcome to the R.I. Science podcast. This month, we consider how close we really are to creating artificial general intelligence. Most current AI systems are made to excel at one particular task. But how far are we from creating a machine that could successfully perform any intellectual task that a human being can? Join our panel of experts, hosted by Stephen Harris, Science Editor at The Conversation, as we attempt to answer this question.
1: Good evening. Artificial intelligence is already all around us. Almost everyone in this room probably has a smartphone that can decipher your speech and attempt to answer almost any question you can think of. AI is driving cars, diagnosing diseases, choosing who's suitable for jobs, and spotting potential criminals. It can also beat the best human players at some of our hardest games. And yet, no single AI is anywhere near as intelligent as a human when it comes to our full range of adaptable, spontaneous, and creative abilities. Yet. Some of the world's most prominent thinkers of recent years, from physicist Stephen Hawking to most recently the environmentalist James Lovelock, have warned that we need to be prepared for the day when the machines become smarter than us that one day we will create an AI that's not just really good at one task, but has the ability to learn how to do almost anything, an artificial general intelligence. But how soon will this AGI become reality? Are we talking years, decades, or centuries? Do we yet have any idea how we might create it? What might it actually look like when it arrives? And should we be worried, that a machine that's smarter than us will inevitably harm us? To offer some thoughts, if not definitive answers, on these questions and more, I'm joined by a panel of experts this evening who are not just predicting the future of AI, but are working to shape it. Adam Stanton, who is a lecturer in evolutionary robotics and artificial life at Keele University. Raya Hadsel is a senior research scientist at Google DeepMind. Dame Wendy Hall is Regis Professor of Computer Science at the University of Southampton, where her research has focused primarily on the emergent field of web science. And finally, Bradley Love is a Professor of Cognitive and Decision Sciences and leader of the wonderfully named Love Lab at University College London. So I thought what might be really useful is if I start by asking the panel, what is AGI, an AI that can... Uh, complete not just a single task, but many tasks in a similar way that a human might be able to. That's perhaps one definition. I want to see if the panel here have any others.
2: Well, I suppose uh, when it comes to AGI, I think that my view is definitely focused on the on the generality rather than on the, the intelligence aspect of it, and I see uh, kind of general intelligent behaviour as something that not just humans do, but all animals do. Um, so I think that whenever we, you know, and maybe even plants as well to some extent, but we have uh, in the natural world this, 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 this huge uh, uh, diversity of behaviour and capability um, that animals exhibit in order to get on with their lives and to live in the world. And they solve a, a, a huge range of different problems and all different kinds of uh, uncertain conditions, slightly different changes in the world. Uh, and yet these things are, these, these creatures are still uh, surviving. So I think that the... Um, Uh, the AGI, the artificial general intelligence actually is going to be something rather like what we see with even quite simple animals rather than uh, just in the realm of human intelligent behaviour. Thank you. Uh,
1: Raya?
3: Yeah, so I think that uh, DeepMind actually coined the term AGI a a few years ago and it was because they wanted to uh, distinguish the type of research that that we were doing from um, other systems um, other types of approaches, things like deep blue, uh, you know, that can, that can beat a human in chess, but is doing so using a lot of engineering to solve that particular problem and in contrast to that we thought of agi as being a set of algorithms that are general problem solvers um, that use um, approaches like uh, machine learning and uh, neural networks um, reinforcement learning in order to sort of automatically figure out how to solve a given problem and so one of you know the tests was can we take this algorithm and put it sort of inside of a problem like like a, a game like a you know a an Atari game, or inside Go, or inside chess, and be able to sort of automatically get to um, a level of proficiency um, that that, that a human would get to as well. Um, So it wasn't as much about solving many problems as just being more general about the method, having the same algorithm to solve many, many problems, because that felt like that's where the power was. Now we've started to um, really push beyond that, because I do think we have a set of algorithms that are quite good at, at, at at playing that role of general problem solvers, and we want to get to the point where um, one algorithm can solve many problems, can become a generalist instead of a specialist.
1: Excellent, Wendy. Have you got any thoughts on this?
3: Well, I, very. I think um, uh, we've
4: heard a lot of the uh, what you need to know, but the um, originally the term artificial intelligence meant. What you now might call AGI, when it was originally coined, that's what it meant. And we were talking earlier about how, in the early days, when you know of AI in the 50s and 60s, when um, computers couldn't do very much at all, <laughs> um, they uh, were theorizing about whether it would ever be possible to build machines that uh, could. Th- can a machine think? Can a, can a machine do what a human brain can do? Could we build an artificial human brain? Effectively, that's what they were talking about in those days. And over time, it was clearly that was going to be really, really, really difficult. So we've sort of broken it down into... And we've developed various different technologies along the way, like rule-based systems, expert systems, computer vision, speech speech recognition. All these things have been around for a long while, but are now getting to the point where... Um, computers you can actually deliver on them and, 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 in, and in some niche areas um, and if you train them on particular data they can, they can perform as well or better than human beings and as Raya said it's what, we, what we're looking for is algorithms that can transcend one particular problem. It's still a very hard problem to solve, um, we're not near it at the moment but I think people can begin to see how you might be able to do it, which is why we worry about it. <laughs>
1: Bradley, you research uh, how the brain works in terms of learning mm-hmm. and, and decision-making. Do you think uh, that a kind of an artificial brain or an artificial human brain is a good way to think about this kind of AI? Um,
5: I mean, I guess intelligence itself is like a slippery enough concept. I mean, when we talk about measuring intelligence in people, we're usually just trying to come up with some kind of measure to put the clever people up here, the less clever people here, and all these lowly animals down here, and that's that's a bit um, problematic. I guess to make it a bit more objective, you know, we just you know try to come up with some set of relevant tasks and say, you know, if you achieve on these tasks, then this is what we call intelligent. I think what's maybe something interesting, bringing this historic perspective, is um, what we consider like an AI task, like. Um, changes over time. So things like sorting lists were considered you know, AI in the 50s, and now that's just like in your library <laughs> and when you're programming. Um, I mean, it's not that much different with people. You know, like our notions of what makes somebody intelligent or not change over time, and we become more open to this idea that there's you know, multiple capabilities you can measure. And so, yeah, I don't know.
1: Sometimes I think we talk about it as if it's an inevitability. Um, is that the case? do you, do you think it's definitely a, an achievable goal to get to this kind of level of intelligence through artificial means?
2: Yeah, I think it's definitely something we should aim for uh, scientifically you know it's, there are there are other more sci-fi things that I think that are possibly less likely you know at least there's an existence proof for, for general intelligence of some sort there's no existence proof for faster than light space travel and that kind of thing, but here we are as intelligent beings kind of being intelligent, so it's clearly possible, so you know whether what the time scale of that is going to be is a different question, but I think uh, we're not uh, silly to try to aim for that.
1: Right, when's DeepMind going to develop AGI? <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, I mean, I, I I don't think that there's AGI and that that's going to be a line in the sand and that we know when, we, when, when we're there. Uh, I mean, we have algorithms that can learn to play games and do things... Um, you know, better better than a human can, or better than animals can in, in some cases, uh, but they're not general yet. And I don't think that that's going to come anytime soon. I don't think that we're going to get to human level of um, ability across, you know, across the domain, speech and um, and action and movement and, um, and and thoughts and planning and all of these different things. That's not going to come together in an artificial system. But I, I don't actually think that that's really the goal of, of DeepMind. Um, or of a lot of cases, we're trying to come up with technologies that can solve problems that we can't solve. Um, And that doesn't necessarily mean that we want a a human intelligence. We want something that is a powerful problem solver um, in order to, you know, work on climate change or financial inequity or things like this. Um, That's not a human... Those are the things that we can't solve. That's why we want AGIs to solve those things.
1: So in some ways, it's still... Not quite as intelligent as a human in some ways, but a lot more intelligent in others.
3: I mean, a calculator is more intelligent yeah. than I am in one particular dimension, right? Um, a, a dishwasher is a better dishwasher than I am at, at some level in that dimension. Um, and so, I mean, I think that we need um, machines that are better at us at the really hard problems. that We, we don't have those machines yet. We don't have those programs yet. Um, so that we can solve the things that we still haven't solved that are really important to us. But in terms of getting something that, that acts and walks and talks like a human, I, I don't think I, I think that that's um, you know science fiction still. Even though we have an existence proof, um, that doesn't mean that we can uh, redo what what evolution has done and um, and create a human brain or anything close to it. So.
1: What you're talking about in terms of what DeepMind's goal, then, is that something that you see happening within a decade, within before the end of the century? What kind of time frame is uh, do you operate on 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 that? that? If I were to ask you to speculate, perhaps, rather than give a definitive answer.
3: Uh, I mean, uh, not to be coy, but if you tell me exactly what type (laughs) of AGI it is that you're interested in, I might be able to speculate. But the the problem is is Mm -hmm. that um, it's something that's really hard to define. I think about it as, um, have we solved this particular type of of problem? Um, Do I have an algorithm that's general enough? Um, that it can be deployed to um, to look for fake news, for instance. That's a really hard problem um, that we've sort of created, uh, we have created. And I think that uh, AGI would be one way to potentially solve this, come up with mm. algorithms that can detect...
4: Um... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Human beings can't detect fake news. I mean, you know, in a sense that... Um... Uh, you, mm-hmm. can have, you can you uh, could use the technology sorry to dive in on this, but I think Thanks. this is a really interesting question that sort of no, comes to job. the nub of it it 's because we have created that of you know be, um, both us our, ourselves doing it and the, using the technology and AI but you know at some level one per i mean if you if you you could use technology to track the provenance of the data and the videos and the sound and the text mm-hmm. that have been used to create this. Potentially, you, you can do that. People can hide, of course. They can hide behind things. But generally, you can use technology. But actually, there are some things that, that people might call fake news, which are another person's absolute truth. And we, it's really hard for us to differentiate between, if it's not obvious, like Mark Zuckerberg's face put on a, another video or something, uh, but if it's just, just in text, let alone playing around with video, um, it's what you believe. I mean, to some extent, fake news is is about what, what mm-hmm. you believe in. Um, if you believe the world is flat and someone tells you it's round, well, you would say that's fake news. A lot of religions are based on this, right? It's faith that things happen that people believe in. Um, And uh, heavens above, I come reading the Bible, there's a lot of people that said that was all fake news back in 2,000 years ago, right? (laughs) Um, uh, You know, this is not a new concept. And I think that, um, so it is actually a really, I think it's a really interesting one to discuss because there is a philosophical question about could a machine do actually, how much fake news could a machine discover and, how much has a human got to be in the loop to decide whether that is fake news or not, and, or if it's um, uh, somebody trying to disseminate information? To, oh, I like the um, oh the measles stuff, right? You know the the ja- the um, uh, anti-vaxxers. Uh, yeah. they're, they're not having. <laughs> they're not could having the increasing them. number of people not yeah, taking because, a measles yeah. vaccine because of Although what they've the read about it. Although the scientific evidence is pointing one way, and there's a group of people that are believing something else, how's a machine going to get involved in that debate, it's really complicated and sophisticated about why people, uh, particular groups of people, believe this, uh, what we as scientists might all call fake news, so um, I I think it's just a fabulous one to discuss, in terms of um, I also want to sort of pick Andy up a bit. You said it's not silly to go for it, but there are people think it's dangerous to go for it. I mean, yes, we are the, the we have an existence of, but what Stephen Hawking's and then James Lovelock's book of last week, which I haven't read, I've only read about, um, are arguing that if machines can develop what we might call today a general intelligence, then they will, out, they will evolve faster than us. So that's the end of the human race, because as biological beings, we evolve much so. This is what Stephen Hawking's point. I'm just
5: not saying I believe <laughs> it one way yeah. or the other. Because I mean, we it's live in a world now where the smart people run everything. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and, I, mean, back, I was just thinking while we were talking about yeah. our, our ancestors, yeah. um, as they walked out of the jungles and all they were interested in was uh, food, sex, <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. Survival, mm-hmm. right? They used to hit you. You know, they'd hit you with a club to get the food off you. I mean, that's what they did, right? But you would call them more intelligent than. I mean, there's levels. You were talking about mm-hmm. this earlier. Mm-hmm. There are levels of intelligence, mm-hmm. and what we mean by intelligence mm-hmm. has changed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, sorry, just to can...
1: just to pick you up on on um, that we, you mentioned before about the kind of the. Um, how the concept of AI has changed and what a long time ago uh, was initially thought of as AI is what we're now talking about. And in between, we've now got... This AI that is more about very specific well, tasks. So it's it's taken us to get to this point. Yeah, just because to get we to had that. to
4: break the problem down because yeah. it was too far, too complicated. But so when we talk about AI today, mm. we really mean machine learning, deep learning. Right. That's what
1: we. So what, can I just, what what I just ask for my benefit for everyone's benefit? What do we mean by deep learning, especially? That's a term I hear increasingly. Might is be one for you, right? what, what, what
4: is deep learning? <laughs> is <the> <laughs>
3: um, deep learning refers to um, a computer program that has uh, layers of what we call artificial neurons, so an artificial neural network that's um, that's trained using usually a lot of data. Um, this is the type of computer program that's going to uh, learn. So we call it machine learning, is because we present examples and the, uh, this neural network. Program, um, um, you know, figures out all the right numbers to set on a million um, little connections in that neural network, and we end up with a computer program that can recognize cats from dogs, or uh, learn to recognize your voice and turn that into text, or um, ter- turn text into speech, um, or translate from French to German, um, or all, all of these sorts of things that we've gotten very used to having that are quite convenient. Uh, on on our on our phones or on our computers, and for the most part these days those are all done using trained neural networks for a particular problem. Um, but just because we call it a neural network has it actually has very little to do. It's loosely inspired by what we know of of the human brain um, or the mammalian brain, and uh, but it's it's. It's, it's, a, it's a computer program. It, it doesn't really uh, bear that much likeness to it. Um, but it can be trained using a lot of data, and that makes it able to represent these very complex functions of what makes an image an image of a cat versus a dog.
1: And are there any deep learning programs at the moment that can be applied to lots of different tasks within perhaps a set sphere of types of tasks? Or are they very specific still?
3: They are all very specific. I mean, we consider it quite an achievement if we manage to um, you know, have a single neural network that can um, solve multiple types of image recognition problems mm-hmm. or play multiple different Atari games. Um, I mean, my uh, 12-year-old son can happily play you know, 20 different uh, Atari games and w- we can't even get to five with, with a neural network. Um, before sort of uh, the the ability falls apart. So these are still things that we are training on specific tasks, which is why I think we're so far away, um, uh, why we're not going to get to human level intelligence uh, in my lifetime or my my son's lifetime. Um, I, I, I really don't. Wendy and you- the benefit that are there. I, I the the benefits of being able to solve things like. Uh, you know, medical diseases, um, climate change. These are problems that we don't have other solutions to um, and and, and this offers a really, really potentially powerful (coughs) new approach. Um, and I think that that promise outweighs the risk of, the, the sort of existential risk that Stephen Hawking likes to talk about. So that's why I'm happily, comfortably still, you know, working as a, a researcher in this field.
1: Wendy, if we, it's taken us now, 50 years or so, to get to the point where we're just at these specific tasks, does that mean you think we've really only scratched the surface in terms of getting <laughs> towards I totally agree with w- what right, that Alex. original concept
4: I was? I totally agree that we are miles away. I'm I don't know about her sons generation I would definitely our generation are not going to see this but I think what we are seeing is that, uh, and, and these are the things we want to harness for the good. This amazing technology for machines to um, interpret data in ways that we can't, in order to solve problems that we can't, in order to give us benefits in health, transport, energy, all you know, all the uh, um, subjects that are education, so many things that um, it can benefit us. But I think that I mean, in the UK, we have definitely taken a lead in terms of ethics and AI. And we we have a number of groups that are looking at that. We have a Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation. And um, I think we really, really need to discuss with people like Bradley here who understand these things, um, you know, what... Well, I think you do. (laughs) He can say in a minute. Um, uh, How are we going to approach? Because we can see a way, even if we can't see... um, that we, we aren't, in, in our lifetimes, going to build general AI, A- AGI, um, we can see AI that could harm people. Right? And just like with the internet, when the internet started, the web, take mm-hmm. the web, but t- you know, Tim Berners-Lee gave us the web 30 years ago, on top of the internet, system for everybody to use, and we, everybody thought it would be used for good. Right? It was, of course, there were people who said, well, we could, you know, most people used to say to me, but how would you get all the information on it? Right, you're going to be missing information out. What, they, what we didn't get was the idea that the bad people use it as well as the good people. Right, The power of the technology is such that we've all got hooked on it and now we've got this sort of... it's turning on us in a way. And we've got to be very careful that we... AI is is such a powerful, potentially powerful technology. We have to work out um, some ethical values. Ethical values, is that right? We have to work out a regulatory system as to how companies use it, how governments use it, how they use our data. Um, And that's really important that we start that now while still building the systems that we want to benefit from.
1: Brad, the the neural networks that we've got... Mm -hmm. Um, Loosely inspired Mm -hmm. by the brain, do you Mm -hmm. think that the human brain is a good model for creating these types of uh, general AI? I
5: I guess using Ryan's example, like you wouldn't want to like copy how the human brain like estimates numerical magnitudes, right? Because people aren't very good at arithmetic, (laughs) right? Uh, So that's all. But of course, like we're better at some things than existing machines, so. Uh, you know, if you could come up with clues for things like common sense reasoning. So if I say, you know, he ate the spaghetti with the meatballs, you know, that the meatballs are in the spaghetti. If I say, he ate the spaghetti with the fork, you know, he's not eating a fork, you know, it's, he's using it as an <laughs> instrument. And if I say, he ate the spaghetti with the children, you know, not shoveling <laughs> the children, <you> know, like, <laughs> the spaghetti down. So those kind of things, they're not, like, out of the reach of, like, machine systems. But, you know, there's probably, like, lessons we could take from people, how they represent information and how they combine constraints together. And those are like where, you know, I think, you know, like the existence proof, right, that's where you could see well, how do people do it, and maybe it could inform how machine systems do. And I mean, that's happened in the past, like, it's already been alluded to, but very, like, general lessons on how the human visual system's organized in this sort of roughly hierarchical fashion of layers, and looking at small patches of images. Like, that is really, like, what inspired... all these models now that could like recognize your photos you know, sitting on your computer and say, that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a moped, and it's really coming back the other way. So it's not like um, it's just, oh, we could take from the brain, from psychology, from neuroscience. These machine systems actually end up being decent models of the brain too. So like if you look at just like patterns of activity in these models, they roughly align with like, patterns of activity you get in the human uh, visual system as you like, traverse layers in the brain. And that's really interesting, because those models are engineering models, right? They're not designed to account for any like, biological detail, but just the constraints of the task of being trained on all this information, just like how evolution's trained us on all this information, all these tasks, have we been exposed since we 've been born to all these visual images like there's some like common constraints where it 's like it's, it's funny because even these machine systems sometimes are mirroring how people do things at a very functional abstract level. Um, Adam,
1: should we be looking to evolution for an idea of how we might create this kind of AGI uh,
2: Yeah, I think we, uh, we absolutely should be looking to I mean the way a lot of these things uh, are, are working in, in, in the abstracts in terms of machine learning actually. Uh, in some sense, could be cast as evolutionary systems. There's there's an exploration, there's there's an exploitation of what's found. Um, And I think uh, evolution allows us to provide a kind of set of, of potential ingredients, potential useful modules, a potential useful functionality into some kind of milieu, and that set could come from our imagination, or it could come from science and what we found out about the brain and all these other things. You know, maybe here's this particular type of neural circuit which seems to be everywhere in, in, in biology. Make, maybe we should make it possible for some kind of artificial evolution in some artificial environment to be able to use a similar thing. You know, and, we, and if we get the ingredients of that right, if we if we can characterize the important aspects of uh, of the world of biological organisms. Um, we might be able to set an artificial evolutionary process off on a path uh, which is leading towards some kind of general adaptable behaviour amongst artificial organisms and ultimately lead to perhaps the kind of step changes in development that we can see not too long ago in our own evolutionary history that's led to to big brains and the kind of problem solving that that humans can do. So that's, 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 that's really my perspective and where I come from in my work is to is to start small and start complete uh, and to do that to use evolution to get to that point and then and then carry on
1: does that sound like a good plan for you uh? start small um, and build up you can ah, disagree it's well <laughs>
3: I mean, I think that the the um, back and forth between um, cognitive science and neuroscience and psychology, and then computer science, has been has been really exciting. That's actually the reason why I decided to join uh, DeepMind. Um, was because they have a a neuroscience group. It's very unusual to have a a research um, lab that's got um, a a deep learning group, uh, a reinforcement learning group, and a neuroscience group. Um, And and I thought that that was just a really exciting combination. Um, One of the, the projects that I worked on was taking inspiration from neuroscience to work on navigation of um, agents in artificial environments, um, na- navigation of these, um, these, these, these programs learning to solve mazes. And what we found then inside of this artificial neural network was something that resembles very, very closely uh, grid cells and place cells, which we know are in um, the mammalian brain and that help with uh this discovered in, in rats and mice and uh, presumably exist in humans as well, and, and so sort of to give that confirmation back, uh, we took inspiration from neuroscience, we developed this line of, of research and experiments, and then we sort of um, you know, opened up these these um, these computer programs and said, "How are these neurons uh, responding to their environment and oh they have the same patterns, they have the same activation patterns in the environment as as what we see in rats and have been observing for the last um, 10, 20 years uh, through neuroscience. It's really nice to have that back and forth. And that's what motivates my research a lot, as much as the problem solving, solve the world's big problems side of it, it's also understanding our intelligence. It's just uh, really exciting to be able to be a part of that using computer programs.
1: Are there things about the way that the AI that we have now works that we maybe don't really understand? Does it sometimes come to decisions or conclusions that we're not quite sure how it got there? And if that's the case, do we need to crack that before we can go any further?
3: Yeah, that's a really common criticism of deep learning systems is that if you've got a few million uh, connections uh, or neurons in these systems and then you train the whole thing sort of end to end, Really, how, how do you understand wh- where it decided, cat or dog, or where the agent decided to go left or right in the maze? Um, but these things are all, they, they come with time. We sort of have other methods for diagnostics, for understanding um, where the attention of the AI was when it made that decision, things like this. It's not quite as nice as having a mathematical you know, proof of what exactly is going on, but I think that, um, um, we're developing the interpretability and analysis of neural networks as, as they're needed. You know, as we go into areas like medical diagnosis, obviously that's incredibly important to be able to, we're not just satisfied with a, a neural network that you know spits out an answer. We wanna know why it ha- had that answer. So this is an important field, but I don't think it should stop us. Um,
5: yeah, that seems re- really important. I mean, you, besides these development issues, which are huge, like how do you trust you know, a system if you don't know how it came up with an answer? There's all these, you could probably see in the news, recent examples of the biases that prejudices people have. Of course, they're like manifest in our language, so when you train machine systems on those same text corpora, then the machine systems will embody those same prejudices. So those are all things that you kind of need to understand what the model's doing to be able to diagnose it, you know, you, you want to get into a car that's, you know, autonomous, you want to know, you know, something that it's, it's, it's somewhat trustworthy, but yeah, I mean, even it's just as, as a scientist, you know, like, I thought as a kid, you know, scientists mix chemicals together and just saw what happened, And but no, like, you actually understand what you're doing, and when you understand what you're doing, you could build off of it and learn from it and go to the next thing, so... machine learning people are making strides, but it's like, yes, if you don't know why your model succeeded or failed, it's really hard to know how to improve upon it. So I think that is like a headwind um, going forward. But I mean, I don't know. It's not like we understand how people make decisions either. So I mean, we study how people do things, right? So we'll start study how machines make decisions. It's the same kind of basic problem it sounds uh-huh. like though, what you were talking about in terms of the
1: biases been there it was it's quite similar to what wendy you were talking yeah. about in terms of how ai might be be used and and also if you know you're trying to make something that can detect fake news and our concept of fake news is based on our own biases do we have do we have to build in biases to to ai in order to uh, for, for it to function in the way that we want it to um and do we—is that therefore something that we need to, to probably understand that that element of bias that we're seeing perhaps in AI at the moment?
4: Oh uh, yes, we do. And I—I'm um, so a little less laid back than Raya, but I. I agree, we shouldn't stop doing what we're doing, but I think we need to really put our foot on the accelerator for explainability in AI. Um, The lawyers will ask us to do that anyway, because this is where Mm -hmm. it will be tested. Um, You know, if you're declined insurance or your insurance goes, up, it's not just medical diagnosis, Mm it's very straightforward things that AI will determine for us. And uh, if a a small organisation is using somebody's AI to make decisions, to sell things to people, then they could get into trouble very quickly. And so, uh, I, you know, I think, and and in this country, the um, UKRI is definitely going to be, I think, one of the main the, the people who fund research in in the UK. Um, it's definitely one of the big agendas. To to we really we really need to get a grip of that. And and in some ways, the, the develop the systems may always be ahead of us a bit, mm-hmm. but. Um, uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, find ways to tackle it um, uh, creatively as we can. And the bias thing is a mm-hmm. huge issue. This is, again, where you've got this, um, where do you bring the regulation in? Because it's so mm-hmm. difficult to decide whether something is biased or not because we are all mm-hmm. biased. So if, if the system's using learning from data that we've created, it will have some bias in it. Um, And it's, uh, you know, who has the right to decide it shouldn't Mm -hmm. be biased this way, it should be biased that Mm -hmm. way. You know, and you've seen researchers do this as well. So these issues are very complicated. And it's exploring that, that my world at the moment is very much about talking to government about where they start with regulation, you know it's, you don 't want to regulate too soon, over-regulate mm-hmm. and stop innovation, but you want to uh, protect people and make sure that they 're not being this not being used to um, do do harm i don 't just mean killing people I mean you know <laughs> ripping people off or stealing or money harms. from them or yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. or it's, social harms it's yeah so.
3: it 's very hard i mean I, I, I remember um, uh, years ago, looking up uh, CEO in Google Images. Has anybody done this? Just Google CEO in, in, yeah. in images, and what do you get? Guy, yeah. You get pictures of white men in, in, in suits. And in a way, but if you look at who are the CEOs in the world, then it's actually fairly representative, unfortunately, of how the world currently is. But what? That's that's not what we want right? We want yeah. to see something that's that's more balanced or do we want to see the actual, you know, mm-hmm. statistics that are already there, yeah. um, and it's a really hard question. It's much easier if you look at something like um, Amazon tried to train an AI to um, um, to look at its candidates, to look at CVs, and find good possible employees, mm-hmm. and discovered that the, no matter how they trained it, that it was hopelessly biased, and that it would say that only men were were good engineers, um, and they just ended up scrapping the entire thing after trying to to uh, you know get around this and unbias it in various ways, and they just scrapped it and said we can't do this because the reality unfortunately is that there's a lot more male candidates out there Mm -hmm. and a lot of our employees are male but that's not what we aspire to we want something that's more balanced and diverse Um, but Google Images is maybe just trying to represent the you know the the world as it is in which case it's more accurate so it's so many hard problems.
5: I think it's even a bit worse so it's not just a question of oh, the world's not fair, and we don't want systems that reflect back an unfair world. Like, a lot of work suggests that these the systems actually like, strengthen these biases. So it makes sense. If, you're, like, if you could interpret a word one way or another way by a computer system, and it's 60-40, you're going to take the 60, right, because you're more likely to be wrong. So, like, if it thinks, oh, should I show, you know, white males or this, this, it's 60-40, it's going to take the 60. So, it actually, in some sense, these systems actually don't even reflect the world. It could even make the biases stronger. So, it could not even be representative of a world we might not be proud of. It could actually be, like, a a stronger, you know, version, Mm -hmm. even more biased than the world actually is you know just by the way the models are fit you know they want to get the answer right more often this than not this has happened not. in yeah. natural
4: language processing yeah. when you give when you give a yeah. system text from a newspaper or something yeah. it will grow the bias yeah like yeah
5: that. it grows the bias so it's not it doesn't just lock in the current world it actually makes it can make it worse mm. yeah
1: is a, um an, a machine that's intelligent enough to, to be able to make its own mind up or maybe even create its own biases um is that uh, something that will be part of the kind of the general intelligence that we're talking about moving towards? Is that, is that perhaps a, a marker we might use
5: for how we know if we've achieved Sorry. it? Sorry. This is just like something really close to my heart because um, like what goes on at Google, DeepMind is amazing what they do with reinforcement learning. So like in reinforcement learning, it's like you collect points from situations and you try to like maximize them doing your actions. Like if you're playing a video game, get a higher score. But like, what are the points that you all are gathering, you know, right now? Like, there's no points, like, going up on the screen. And so, like, yeah, I think that's something like we study in lab. How do people, like, kind of almost create their own notion of value or their own preferences? How do we maintain consistency in our beliefs? And so, yeah, I think that actually will be like a hallmark of any sort of, you know, intelligent system is kind of developing their own preferences and, and, and drives and, Yeah.
4: Can I just jump in here, because um, we haven't mentioned China yet, but um, <laughs> the Chinese are experimenting with social credit ratings, quite interestingly, which... Mm-hmm. So um, this is
1: a system where every citizen has a score? Well,
4: they're different in different cities. There's no one, as my mm-hmm. understanding yeah. is, there's no one social credit rating in China yet, but they are they are experimenting, and, of course, it, u- it uses AI, a form of AI. Um, and, and it and determines basically access to service um, and things well, it, like it, that. Well... Uh, your behaviour on the internet determines, yeah, mm-hmm. it might, the, the kids your schools can go to, no, the schools your kids can go to, <laughs> um, and uh, really quite, you know, whether you can have a, a bank loan or not. Right, mm-hmm. and it's 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 really quite serious stuff, mm-hmm. um, and they are prepared to make this public information too. Um, your credit rating. Now, but we have a we have a. Financial credit rating in the in the West, um, we don't tend to make those public, um, and we can question how they're created. So it's, a set, it's sort of that that sort of thing, but created by other human beings about you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, it, uh, these are very interesting social experiments. and I, I should say, by the way, I go to China a lot. I don't think everything China does is bad. Not, uh, they, are by f- they are hugely developing AI, that's for sure. Um, we can't ignore what's happening there. But they are a, a, a different culture. They have a different way of governing everything, obviously. They, um, uh, they're not a democracy. Uh, they're an authoritarian state. So, you're setting it in that context. but. Um, you know, in some ways it's safer to be on the internet in China as an ordinary citizen who's obeying the laws, so to speak, than we have all sorts of threats from the internet that we don't know how that have occurred. We don't know how to regulate them retrospectively. Um, And AI will just make, you know, AI, this being done by machines, will make matters exacerbate all that, I think.
1: I'm interested in what's the next kind of horizon or stepping stone on this path towards a more general uh, AI. Um, where are we going more in the, in the in the more short term, Adam? What do you think?
2: Um, well, I think my sort of slightly more sci-fi perspective, I guess, is uh, it's still entirely focused on uh, getting robots, whether that's Simulated things in a in a in a in a in a video game type world, or whether that's a real robot in the in the real world, um, just to be able to deal with a lot more of the uncertainty there is uh, in either in the real world or in those simulated worlds. So, um, uh, and in terms of dealing with that uncertainty, I mean, behaving more like simple animals. So, getting robots to behave even like you know with the adaptability and the uh, and, and the resourcefulness of an insect or a, or or a mouse or something like that. You know, this is this is the next the horizon for the next. 20 years 30 years perhaps for for, for me and uh, and sort of the way i approach the problem of agi yeah do you agree with that right
3: yeah i mean my my research is probably much closer to yours than um, um the others here and and i think that uh for, for me one of the research horizons is understanding how to have uh programs um robots or simulations and games that can keep learning over sort of a lifetime that can Mm -hmm. learn as we do. We don't don't learn from a whole bunch of a data set, you know, all (laughs) compressed and learn the whole thing. We don't take all of our, our, you know, science books and stack them all up Mm -hmm. and learn it all at the same time. Um, instead, we, we, we study one thing for a while. We learn how to get good at one task. I might learn to play the piano for a while. I might um, focus on something else for a while. I might then learn a, have a career, then I might have a second career. I might do philosophy and then end up doing computer science. They did, and we learn these different things and it sort of adds up and it allows us to have all of these um, different skills um, that we gain o- over a lifetime. And that's something that is, I think, the. That's, that's in some ways the farthest away from what we can do right now. Um, because uh, our, our neural networks uh, agents will simply forget over time learn one, two, three different tasks and they've forgotten the first one. And I think that that will really change how we think about AI um, and start to get to the level of maybe simple animals that can learn in an environment. Um, on more of the sort of applied side of it, I think that we'll start to see uh, AI being used to do things like optimize our energy systems more. Um, I think that there are some areas that are really ripe for just being able to Im- improve um, in a way that hopefully it doesn't have any bias in it at all. It's just reducing the amount of energy that we're using.
4: Whoa, um, whoa. The grid. Well, sorry. <laughs> so I, I thought about. I, I agree with you. To until I went to Dubai the other week, and they're mm-hmm. um, working on technology that makes cloud makes it rain, right? Now, so yeah. I'm thinking, yeah, of course, that's what they want. Yeah. Other parts of the world might want less rain, or they might want other. You know, I mean, how does this how does this play out in a global system? Mm. Right. Yeah, you know, There's all huge right. biases there. <laughs> and I, I told you, know, yeah, when I give my talks, I would say energy is why we can make things more efficient. Yeah, and we can, um, but I just, you know, we could all just turn, well, learn, we could turn lights off and shut doors and wear jumpers in the winter and not yeah. put, when I go into a Singapore hotel and the temperature thermostat set at 17 degrees C, <laughs> and go, why? It's so yeah. bloody cold in here. Well, one actually, of the things that I've looked at problems. recently
3: involved just... Uh, being able to price wind power in a stable way by simply predicting forward—if you mm-hmm. can, because fossil fuels are always available, you can power the grid by fossil fuels <laughs> all the time. So there's this endless supply. Well, there's not, but there, it's at least a constant supply. Whereas wind comes yeah, and goes, does, yeah, and the sun comes yeah. and goes. And wind, in particular, is incredibly volatile, mm-hmm. and that makes it really, really hard to price it in such a way that it's competitive um, at all. And if you can simply predict with you know better accuracy, thirty. Six hours into the future, what the wind mm-hmm. is going to be—that allows the grid to say, "Okay, mm-hmm. here's how much I'm going to buy from uh, fr- from wind farms," and it and and it changes everything. So I think that that it's not quite as exciting as making it rain, nor as controversial as making it <laughs> well, rain. Just, it but just, I do think that we're going to see more I, of these And that's sorts a fabulous, ex- absolutely
4: fabulous example, and it's exactly how we can use AI for the good. Now, I just think that there are. <laughs> biases in global systems that we don't think about at all because we can't control them. But when we can control them, they will become biased. I am a great, as a scientist, I'm a, I've followed the A-Life world. of, have you know, employed lecturers who were in this and that. I think it's an artificial life, A-Life, um, is a, a, absolutely. We need new breakthroughs in AI because what we've got today is amazing, but it will not, on its own leaders to general AI, I don't think. We will need other new breakthroughs in different types mm-hmm. of AI. And, you know, AI that learns like a baby learns from <laughs> the ground up. Um, it, it, it's something we should strive for as long as we have our eyes open about what we're trying to achieve with it uh, and, the, and the and the making sure that we do it in a responsible way. Um, but there will be other breakthroughs. We don't have, well, again, mm-hmm. Bradley might know, we don't have anyone here into brain-computer interfaces, but I think mm-hmm. brain-computer interfaces yeah. are going to be yeah, really interesting. Yeah. Um, you see stuff on the horizon mm-hmm. now. Yeah. I think this will hit within the next 10, 15 years, and that... Is both exciting and scary at the same time. Yeah,
5: no, no, I agree. Yeah, I think there are going to be there's going to be needed some new developments. But um, maybe just to turn the clock back to think, how did we get here? Like a lot of the ideas that are revolutionising the world now are really from like the 40s, 50s, and 60s, or like early neural network models and and they died off, you know, and then they came back in the 80s again, including like algorithms we use now, like backpropagation, and then it died off, and now it's like ruling the roost, and like why is this, so there's more to like what leads to an AI revolution than just the algorithms, the ideas, it's about the whole ecosystem, so now, for the first time, you know, we just, like, with a couple little tweaks and tricks, which there's just a lot more data to process that's useful. Uh, the computing power is there, in a way it wasn't for these particular types of models and so you put that all together and there's not really like an intellectual breakthrough in some deep sense, but practically, you know, it's a huge breakthrough because you have new capabilities and it's like AI is marketable really for the first time ever. So, you know, we might see like breakthroughs and that lead to like just qualitative changes in how we live our lives, but they might actually be ideas from like 15, 20, 30 years ago, you know, from other mm. fields.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Mentioning brain-computer interfaces sparked an idea of mine. I I was thinking about, is there a chance that there's just a limit to what we can do, that that we will never actually be able to create a pure artificial general intelligence? Might actually we end up going down more of a kind of cyborg route or a a transhuman route, whatever you want to kind of um, describe it as, where we end up kind of combining our own human intelligence with an augmented system. Any ideas on that? It's very speculative
5: on my behalf. Yeah, I guess we need to know how intelligence works, right? So like yeah. in um, computer science, there's people are feeling really nerdy, you could Google big O notation. So basically as problems get larger, like the kind that we'd want to apply a machine system to, like they take longer to run, they're more complex, but some problems like you know, you make the problem twice as big, it only takes twice as long to run. Other problems, you make it twice as big, it takes a million times longer to run. You know, so I guess if we don't really know like what the algorithm of intelligence is and how we're combining things together, like we don't really know the limit of like an artificial system. Like people have very limited working memory and ability to hold on to facts, but is that what's really holding us back? If we could just turn the knob up in an artificial system or in some cyborg, would we become really smart or not? Well, it depends on kind of like what the algorithm is, like what the steps are that we're going through in our head and how does it scale and like I don't think anyone really knows And so, you don't, until you know, you can't really know what the limit is. Yeah.
1: Final question before I open it up to the audience and it's one that I feel has probably been looming over the, the whole discussion and that's how worried should we be? Maybe perhaps not for ourselves, but maybe for our descendants. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about how technology can have biases built in, and how it, it can be used for bad, but also be used for good. But what if we get to a point where it's the technology itself is what we might term bad? Um, is, is the, you know Are the warnings that we get from people like Stephen Hawking uh, and, and now James Lovelock something we should be taking very seriously? Adam. Um, <clears throat> well, I think uh, Nick
2: Bostrom's work on this is very you know, prescient, very interesting. Um, and this idea that ultimately you could you could you could have a uh, an intelligence which was feeding off itself and getting more and more until you have this kind of intelligence explosion and you have this super intelligence uh, and i th- I think that Nick Bostrom kind of argues that that if we pursue this route is somehow inevitable, um, which may or may not be true um, but I love his idea of uh having if that is the case, having a controlled detonation of of AI so uh, we kind of work up. Um, very carefully to this to, the, to, to, to this point where we let it go, but we're kind of confident at that point when we do detonate it, it's going to go uh, in the right direction for us. And in the right direction is uh, presumably having encoded within it somehow the, the values that human beings think are important, and uh, and you know kind of a, a respect for nature and living things as well. And I think that's that's, that's certainly my perspective on it. So if, as I work. Uh, in artificial evolution, doing incredibly simple things—you know, a million miles away from any of this, this stuff that we're talking about—but perhaps from my perspective, the start of it, um, you know, at the back of my head, I'm thinking, well, how can I uh, encourage these developing species of artificial intelligence things in my computer simulations? How can I encourage them to be uh, more like uh, living systems? And I think that, that the idea of um, Biophilia is really exciting and, and beautiful, and biophilia is the sense that we all i think feel uh, of love towards natural world and kind of caring towards other other creatures and plants animals and all those kind of things. Um, why do we have that? Why is that built into into human beings and it seems to be built into into other animals as well so I think um, a really sort of lovely direction to take in terms of this this, this controlled detonation is to ensure that uh, any AI that we do, any AI that we do manage to produce, uh, has this aspect to its to its to its psychology.
1: I'm glad you've given us that, that rosy picture because I have to say, controlled detonation of AI. I was just picturing plot the sci-fi film where everything goes wrong. Sure. Um, how how worried should we be in the long term? Um.
3: I think that I mean you. I, I've 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 been asked. You know, should we, we be worried about an existential threat, threat about the, a dystopian future? I've also been asked, um, w- what what is our utopian future? I mean, I, I think that one can get very hyperbolic about this um, easily. I think that honestly, our energies are better spent focusing on yes, ethics and safety um, issues now and. Um, policy making and things like that to control the, the dangers that we see now. Like I said, there's there's a lot of benefits that can come from problem solving tools. I think that we owe it to our world to, to pursue those. Um, and and with that comes the danger of exacerbating bias or um, um, weapons, you know, uh, autonomous weapons. You don't need that much advanced technology in order to to build things that are pretty scary. The human race has done a pretty good job of dealing with all sorts of threats all along the way for a long time now. I think that we're going to keep on dealing with this. Mm. Um, we do have, um, you know, I'm not I'm not being complacent or blind to this. Um, you know, at, at, at DeepMind, we feel strongly enough about this that we have an AI safety research group. We also have the DeepMind ethics and policy group. Um, that, and and this, is, this is their daily uh, job to think about these things. So it's important, but let's think about the threats that are here uh, now and in the near future, rather than thinking about the hyperbolic uh, utopia or dystopia um, of, of the future.
1: I heard murmurs of agreement. So.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I,
4: I, I, not all companies are going to behave as well as DeepMind. Yeah. Um, and do you remember when Google had Do No Harm on the front of uh That isn't there anymore. Um, and, I, and I think sometimes hap- things happen... We've seen it with the internet that weren't intended, that have done harm, that were really not intended. I, 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 the biofilial thing, is that... Uh, I, I, I mean, y- y- you can say that in the abstract, but actually we are destroying habitat mm-hmm. we are pulling down trees and you know destroying the natural habitat for the animals uh, you know we are mm-hmm. and ourselves. Dis- and, well yes mm-hmm. we are destroying the planet so that's possibly a bigger problem we might destroy the planet that way before we develop AGI <laughs> or, a pan- or a pandemic will come and wipe us out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I, I just think we we absolutely I totally agree with Roya the um we 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 shouldn't sit and worry about this stuff to the point where we don't develop things because there are gonna be fantastic opportunities using AI well. I think the problem is getting companies to be socially responsible and governance, governments yeah. to be collectively socially responsible about this. That's the hard thing.
5: Yeah. I th- Brad, final thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, um, I, I actually think there's next to a, a zero chance of like a AI um, deciding on its own to like wipe us all out unless the, the programmers were completely negligent in how they coded up the objectives of um, the algorithm, but, yeah, there are real real dangers, like, um, yeah, like we mentioned, um, you know, autonomous and my autonomous weapons, but those, I guess it's really important to make the distinction, that's people using AI as a weapon against other people, so it's people giving the order, um, or at least the general order, um, and, yeah, but there's going to be, I think the... Things just that are gonna be more impactful are gonna be things like what's everyone gonna do here for a job? You know, like so industrial revolution took away like physical brawn labor and were taught to make fun of Luddites, but it took them two generations for their descendants to come up to the same level they were uh, after their like you know loom work was like displaced. And so, you know, if there's 30% of the population that can't compete with the machines intellectually. Well, like we have to change how we govern and how society works, and it's just going to... Because there's going to be a lot of winners, there's going to be a lot of great things, but there's going to be a lot of losers, losers. and it could be potentially destabilizing.
4: The Industrial Revolution actually brought us a five-day working week, Mm -hmm. right? The weekend. It's also, if we have the right government that takes this Mm -hmm. opportunity to think about social reforms, then we could use this to really help reform society. And that's what I would like to see. We could have a four-day week, but we, what we need are things that AI isn't, even ro- robots and AI, even with what the Japanese are doing. I don't believe we have, you can say your robots are gonna care for the old people, mm-hmm. the, the people with disabilities, the, the people with learning difficulties. I don't, you know, we, we need human beings to do that, and we need that to be hu- valued in society. And this is a chance for us to uh, mm-hmm. try out some social reforms.
1: Thank you. And on that very political point, (laughs) I'd like to uh, open the the discussion to the audience.
3: Um, Given that our regulators, government, policymakers have been pretty toothless, in fact, pathetic at uh, controlling Facebook, Google, et cetera, all the data mining companies, um, what hope do you have for any kind of decent framework to be put in place to... Encourage well, but regulate AI Can as I well? take... Yeah, it sounds I, like
4: one for I, you. I, I, I think about this a lot because obviously it's the world... I'm, I think it's not that they've been toothless. It's that these things have happened very fast in terms of social revolution. Mm. Facebook only started in 2004. That's fifth, only started in 2004 right? Mm-hmm. It's 15 years ago. Yeah. It's nothing. And wh- how, how that's developed, and this, again, we were talking um, beforehand about the terms and conditions mm-hmm. that you have to sign before you go onto to any app or website and nobody ever reads them. Well, they're only doing things that we said they could do with our data, and we keep on giving them data, because we get a return on our investment. We like it. You know, mm-hmm. no, it's not technologists that have created the internet. It's actually us, the people, mm-hmm. putting our stuff there. And um, th- this this has grown very rapidly. I mean, the companies, you know, they they only very recently become on the stock market, and they, they've grown to be bigger than their mm-hmm. G, you know, the GDP yeah. of most nations almost. And and I don't think any government <laughs> could have really could have dealt with that. And the idea that we're going to just going to be able to tax them is a pipe dream, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know this 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 is a, a big dilemma, because um, in another world I write about how the internet is fragmenting along geopolitical lines, and one of the reasons this is all the different pressures, and you've got all those companies and in one state in the US or in China. That's where the big companies are. And um, when I was in India I gave a talk about the internet splitting up and we might because of this there might be we might get digital trade barriers in the future because of the way the internet is is evolving. Um, and they said, oh great, that means we can charge Google before or Facebook yeah. or Amazon, you know, at the at the border. Right <laughs> Wow, well, I mean, because yeah. who else do they benefit? Other than you know, um, a, a quite a small subset of yeah, the world. Where,
5: where's the value created to tax it? It's so complex. Well, it's yeah. so
4: complex. So yeah. I, I don't think I don't think it's fair to say governments have been toothless. I do think there are so many complexities in this. When you know our government has just the current one, has just published an Internet Harms white paper. And they're sort of saying, well, it's up to you, Facebook, to really worry about this. And yes, of course, companies should be responsible Like should, for the AI. They should be responsible about the content. But it it can't, do we really want companies on the west coast of America to be our censors? Is that what we want? No. So this is, re- I don't mm-hmm. think that's what we want, but it's, it, mm-hmm. and it's actually beholden on all of us as well to be, you know, this mm-hmm. is the world we've helped to create. So this is not a simple, um, a simple issue. I think I could go on forever about this because I'm writing about it at the moment, but I mm. won't. Let's let let have, have some more time.
1: questions from the audience.
2: Um, humanity isn't particularly well known for its open-mindedness so how do you think while the gen- general intelligence develops how do you think um, society as a whole
1: will develop with it like how will it backlash against it it's a new thing and as I said we're not particularly great at being open to new things
4: within our society. What, with, Just picking up from the last question what backlash was there against Facebook? Uh, you know, we haven't had a backlash against the social networks yet. I thought there would be one when the Cambridge Analytica scandal and all that hit, but there not
3: Well, there was a backlash against Facebook, um, but, you know, a lot of people stopped using Facebook and then they came back again, or they stopped using Facebook and then they went to um, Instagram. <laughs> yeah. yeah. um, I do think that the monopoly aspect of it all is is yeah. is really important, and that's obviously what a lot of um, mm-hmm. politicians and tech executives and etc are all are all looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I assume that we will see this played out over the next the relatively short term, the next few years.
6: Mm-hmm. More questions, gentlemen over here in the front. Drawing on the previous two questions, and just to maybe throw out an example of where regulation might help with this, you know, potential areas of backlash. So recently somebody demonstrated to me an AI system that was uh, really good at uh, examining x-rays, lung x-rays, mm-hmm. and, and in some instances it, it seemed to be getting uh, uh, better at uh, spotting uh, patients who needed investigation than mm-hmm. uh, uh, clinical practitioners. Um, now, to, to my mind, there's a real, and I think Bradley, you mentioned mm-hmm. it, there's a real trust issue there. Do you feel comfortable having that kind of technology, uh, not necessarily making the decisions, but really driving the, the, the process? And I guess my, my question is, you know, how do we envisage a regulatory system that is going to uh, not just bash those who we say, you know, you're behaving badly, but is going to foster some kind of trust in, in the public that actually this is a kind of technology we want to be putting our faith in to some extent?
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean it's really really tricky because you don't wanna I'm not a regulatory expert, but you don't wanna create like a bunch of new laws that are just for, you know, year two thousand nineteen and then have them be out of date. And a lot of the existing laws we have, you know, maybe they just need to be reinterpreted in a clever way. You know, if somebody makes, you know, um autopilot that malfunctions on a plane that's not really an AI and you know they're gonna be held responsible. So uh, hey, maybe it's just that just I mean, I guess it just has to be clear. Who do you hold responsible? Like, do you hold responsible, like, who you rented the car from? You know, if it's some autonomous who developed it. I mean, I guess, um, yeah. I mean, your other question about, like, how, how do you trust these things? I mean, I guess I always... Kind of fall back on like, do you really know how your radiologist is deciding? And as a real sidebar, you could actually train pigeons to like do a decent job with mammograms <laughs> 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 and they don't know what they're doing. Um, but I think, you know, like a lot of these systems, at least for the foreseeable future, there'll be a human in the loop just like you hinted at, right? So like maybe, you know, you could have a, a decent partnership where machine system is flagging things and saying, you know, prioritizing which ones should be scrutinized more or should get a second or third opinion on. So, I mean, that could um, hopefully catch catch mistakes, but I mean, someone has to ultimately be responsible, right? You can't just say, oh, the machine did it and, yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, sometimes people ask, uh, uh, say, say, say to me that, um, oh, I, I would never trust an autonomous car because I don't understand how it works. And, you know, I have to say, do you understand how a regular car works <laughs> because i I don't I mean maybe maybe a car that's a few decades old but but a current car uh, you know yeah. do you understand how it works no there there's a lot of complexity there, but we do have trust why because that's it's more on the basis of experience um, and um, um, you know, regulation, but also just the record of safety in these things. We already have all of these tools, I think, to regulate and to manage and to build trust in new technologies. We do it all the the time. I'm not sure that AI will be that different in the end. Um, A company that wants to have a trustable autonomous car is going to... Provide that safety record is going to do that testing is going to um, have that um, have the information on um, you know so that you can go through the logs and understand mm-hmm. why different decisions are made and things like this. I, I think that that all just comes as the technology is developed. Um, I use uh, you know cruise control on my car. That's an autonomous system on my car. I, I use that. I trust it. Why? Because of experience and because of, of, of that track record um, and th- these sorts of things. So. Yeah.
5: I mean, it's really, uh, sorry to get off topic, but like people really have an illusion of understanding of the world around them. This is just like my psychologist hat. Like, if you could look this up, if you just try to draw, if you're a cyclist, try to draw a picture of a bicycle like right now, like people draw insane things that just aren't physically able to like move forward and, it, and it's not like, this is like 90 some percent of people, like nobody knows like how a toilet works. Nobody knows how anything works around them. <laughs> but we feel like we understand things. So maybe just like when you move, there's certain words that are scary, like radiation, maybe AI, you know, sort of things that um, increase our anxiety, maybe make us realize we don't understand what's going on. Maybe that's why everyone panicked in the year 2000, because we realized we're already out of control with like our electrical and billing systems or something. But um, yeah, so um, I guess the general thing is maybe we don't actually have that depth of understanding of our cruise controls, everything around us, but AI might just make us more aware of just that we're just, the world's really complex and we don't really know what's going on a lot of times. (laughs) (laughs) This is very true.
1: Uh, More questions. Uh, There's a gentleman there and then another one next to him.
6: I just wanted to know how AI literate do you think our politicians are and at the risk of exposing the bias in the question, how would we improve that? And if there's one thing you would do to improve the AI industry tomorrow, what would it be?
1: Wendy, how AI-literate are politicians? Well,
4: actually surprising, um, you know, the the, the, um, the current government, and I'm not being political about this, I'm talking about general in governments, I'm not, <laughs> but the the current government asked Jerome Pesenti and I to write the review of AI in the, in the um, seeing this wave that was coming, um, you know, war, uh, there's this issue of job losses, so okay, we've we got the two superpowers, US and China, so what's the UK's role in this world? Um, uh, going forward, uh, given that we have a fabulous legacy in the UK of AI research and research groups, going right back, of course, to we would like to claim that we invented mm-hmm. AI through Turing. We didn't invent the term, but, um, uh, and, and, and also a fabulous uh, startup culture in the in for a country of our size um and a lot of those now are ai startups. so they wanted to sort of it was how can ai help grow the the uk economy and it became part of the industrial strategy and i have met several ministers who um I, I have had a very good grip of what's going on not a deep technical one but an understanding and and you know it did become um uh, the, we wrote the review and then they, they created a sector deal for AI. I didn't know what a sector deal was when we started. It just means mm-hmm. it gives the, the government the means to put some money into it and that became part of the industrial strategy. And I think we are, um, outside of US and China, we're pretty far ahead of most of countries apart from Canada and uh, possibly the French and the Germans. But <laughs> <laughs> I would put UK and Canada... In terms
6: of, I'm talking about nation
1: states here. Next question. Hi. Um, So, what would you say, the main barriers to like um, uh, AI, so a neural network that's
2: um, essentially creating other neural networks, so sort of you get like an intelligence boom and like you pass a point of singularity creating an ASI. Um, so what would you say the barriers are to that and then if we do create like an ASI, what would you say to um, the fact that essentially you've got a neural network which is like f- thresholds that need to be passed which is essentially how neurons work and then uh, I know it's more unscientific and controversial but um, sort of the idea of um, essentially because you've got these networks of firing neurons essentially mm-hmm. um Consciousness, the C word, quite controversial.
5: Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe it's something I said before. I don't think it's all about the algorithm. Like, so, I mean, if you stick a human baby on a deserted island, you know, it's not going to do really well. Um, it's like, like, you know, if we took away all our computers and all our factories, we're not going back to the moon or Mars or anywhere. So there's like um you know, we've done this, like, bootstrapping, like, process, both across human development, but across, like, generations. We've created this really complex environment for ourselves that, like, I think, like, drives us to improve and innovate. So, like, I think that's going to be, like, in some ways, it's like, like, why do systems work now? They have, like, better training data, you know? So, like, maybe we just need... So part of it will be, like, the algorithms, and maybe they should be, like, brain-inspired or not. But, like, it seems like a lot of it will just be the complexity of like the environment that it's put in and is there multiple agents that could like kind of share their knowledge or like create like their own culture or you know bootstrap something as opposed to just like you know just run this algorithm and just let it go it's probably just like a person being born not going to get far on its own
3: yeah we we have algorithms where we have neural networks that generate other neural networks uh sometimes generate other neural networks called a field called meta learning um or learning to learn um and it's not a magic bullet, so it <laughs> doesn't <Yeah>. work <laughs> i mean it does it allows you to um, um, handle a different type of problem, but it's not like there's something Magical there in having one neural network uh, sort of create the parameters for another neural network, um, or or set the the, the initial weights. Um, I think that unfortunately the, the the problem of getting to intelligence is is. You know, it's it's much much deeper than that. To even get to a very very simple animal level of uh, of intelligence is something that we don't really understand what that mechanism is um, without sort of coding in hand hand engineering specific behaviors and responses et cetera. So um, through having an algorithm that creates other algorithms that doesn't actually give you uh, some sort of of, of uh, takeoff power.
2: I think one of the interesting things uh, that is very powerful and I think that you guys are doing it a bit at DeepMind as well is is the adversarial search Mm. stuff where where you're playing one developing intelligence off against another I suppose you could put it like that and they're, they're both getting... Kind of the, 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 right. the, the,
3: competitive the self-play is competitive how self-play, a lot of yeah, our algorithms yeah. work in terms of uh coming up with a human level player of starcraft or a human mm-hmm. level player of chess or go so um and get, getting to that level that's all done by by self-play by competition
2: yeah and that between a, agents you know and i, I see that you know, from a slightly different perspective again from my evolutionary perspective but you know it's a co-evolutionary process you've got mm-hmm. different uh, agents, different with different abilities, you know, competing for the same space, and that's exa- you know that's at least we could say that's an important part of the process. Again, that's created intelligence in the natural world is that we've been okay. we've okay. been shifting uh, our environments based on what other species are doing. Um, and I think that might be the closest we get to how we do that that ratcheting thing. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Two, two robots fighting it out while we stand by I mean, Adam, if you don't write sci-fi already, I think you should. There's the a really scenarios. big problem with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unstable. I work with
3: robots, and we've talked about, you know, putting uh, robots together and having a competition or a collaborative aspect to it or something. And, and um, the problem is that when robots get bruises, <laughs> they don't actually get better than, you know, a few <laughs> days later. Um, they do in simulation. Mean, uh, there you go. The real robots really don't. Um, it makes it, it, I, I recently fell down half a flight of stairs and got some bruises and scratches, and a week later I was absolutely fine and I just went, oh my god, our robots can't do this, they will never um, get anywhere. Uh, I, I do think it, it, it's a problem. I mean, uh, in terms of developing uh, robotics, uh, it's very hard to get past the hardware, which is not developed for learning in the world. Mm-hmm. The hardware mm-hmm. we have, the robots that we have in the world are developed for high-precision things, mm-hmm. being yeah. robots. Mm-hmm. They're not for learning and bumping around and learning like a baby does yeah. or an animal does at all. Um, until, they, until they can recover from bruises, then I think uh, mm-hmm. well, it we're may be definitely we, safe.
2: We end up with a totally different substrate for trying to implement artificial intelligence which perhaps is wet and messy in the same way that biology is you know we'll t- we'll take that route to towards achieving both. Mm-hmm. can i ask which do you think is more likely that the first general artificial intelligence will be built by humans or by yeah. a non-general artificial intelligence <laughs>
1: uh,
5: anyone I, I mean it just seems already like when people search through for the best architecture for a simple problem in like computer vision that it's already like a machine searching through a problem space of possible models and, and figuring out which, like, optimizing for which one's best. So in like a very simple way, I guess that's like already a program finding the best program. So it already is that way, you know.
3: Right, an optimization algorithm yeah. that actually change uses uh, gradient descent to uh, yeah. change the parameters of a neural network is already sort of a, a program doing that. If you consider the final neural network to be the AGI, then yes, it is a sort of hard-coded process to optimize that, to get to that point.
5: Yeah, I think we kind of touched on it tonight that the problem is a lack of maybe general information on AI and confusion. Because from an industry perspective, most of our algorithms are really well defined. Defined, They're kind of so specialized that they're dumb. Um, okay. And a lot of the data they are run on is Uh, very, very specialized as well, highly specialized because they have to do something Mm -hmm. that we want. I think the problem is generality really from an industry perspective. And I wonder how can we bridge the gap between a kind of an academic viewpoint and what industry actually wants.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, we have a bit of this dilemma at DeepMind. We have a lot of researchers there, and we have a lot of people working on very blue skies research and thinking um, in, a, in a sort of an academic sense on, um, uh, you know, intelligence and, and algorithms and such. But on the other hand, then yes, industry really wants more concrete solutions. Um, I, I think that the the the, the hope is that. Um, is that some of the nuggets that come out of this more blue skies research will be directly usable? Um, I agree. When I, I mean, I work on a, a project on climate change, um, on doing a, um, weather forecasting using neural networks as opposed to the numerical numerical models that are generally used. And there, I'm not deploying reinforcement learning and 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 mm. sort of the most general algorithms, I'm deploying a very specific set of of techniques and tuning it for that data Mm. and that environment, et cetera. Um, So there's always a balance there of trying to take uh, some core nugget that comes from academia and make that useful for uh, applications and for industry, um, for for other parts of the world. Um, I I don't think there's a good solution there. There just needs to be sort of communication and a lot of, um, you know, handoff, and partnerships, and collaboration. Um, There seems to be a consensus across the panel that we're
4: still quite far away from AI and these types of robots. Why is it that the media seems to think that we're like right on the brink, we're going to get robots <laughs> <laughs> ASAP. <laughs> They're going to be like thousands of workers out of jobs. Why, why are we seeing that kind of material if it seems that it's still quite say far away? Because that's the big story <laughs> and they don't really understand
3: it. I mean, it had, like <laughs> headlines true, in don't. Hollywood uh, yeah. were primed by Hollywood oh, and do. all the wonderful <laughs> sci-fi <laughs> writers. Well, um, to uh, you know, use our imagination and think about these things, and then headline wants to make st- those those connections. Um, I mean, I learned that when I um, you know produce some research that might possibly be newsworthy, to make sure that I have a good graphic that's concrete and that represents the actual <laughs> problem, because otherwise I'm going to see a terminator there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, this research has nothing to do with robotics, why uh, did you put a Terminator? i thank you,
1: you are a science editor's
5: dream. Yeah. I, yeah. I've had the
4: same experience that whenever you talk about AI, the the picture that the media put forward is a, is a Terminator-type robot. Yeah. So it's scary, it's male, it's a robot. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, AI isn't all about that yeah. at all.
2: Uh, if- would you agree that if you can decompose a problem down into its simplest parts, you can make an AI that can solve it? And if that's the case, does the problem of an AGI become: Can
5: we make an AI that can decompose problems? That comes up in like reinforcement learning, right? Like that. Um if you have, like, say, the goal is like, oh, I want to make a sandwich, but then you need like, sub-goals right, to decompose it, like, oh, I need the ingredients, you know, so then that becomes like, maybe a tractable problem, and then I have to assemble them together or something. So, I mean, I think that's something that people are good at is like identifying, maybe they don't do it completely efficiently, but identifying like relevant sub-goals to break the problem down, so as opposed to just doing some kind of global optimization of a single reward s- system. So, yeah, I guess, in general, if you could break things scale poorly, so if you could break a big problem into little, a lot of little problems is a lot easier than one big problem in general.
3: On the other hand, there's a lot of approaches that were sort of used before deep learning, for instance, computer vision. How am I going to solve the problem of identifying yeah. a cat versus a dog? Well, I'm going to start to try to break the problem down. I'm going to identify the you know, segmentation in the image. I'm going to try to pick out features um, that are more like cat ears and dog ears. But you can already see the problem is that it's, yeah. it's actually hard to define why a cat looks like a cat and a dog looks yeah. like a dog. Um, but you try to pick out those features and you try to decompose the problem and solve it all individually and then put it together and come up with... And, and we call that sort of an uh, maybe an expert system way of solving the problem mm-hmm. and instead of that um, deep learning goes entirely the other route says nope just feed in the pixels raw don't tell me anything except for at the end of the day is it a cat or is it a dog and I will and, and the neural no, no. network will figure no. out how to how to pick out the features and solve the problem so it's actually not at all by by decomposing it I agree that reinforcement learning yeah. there's a problem there of yeah. if you just have a a, a reward of you know you get you get a point yeah. you win if you make a sandwich. Well, <laughs> so you are not going to find that by by yeah. random search. Um, you've just ex, you've just explained
4: why this is so unexplained, why it's hard to get these systems to explain how they have
3: made this. Exactly. This is why the She's power versus a really the, good example. N- yeah. the, the black box side of mm. it is definitely there, but you well, know I think even...
5: Yeah, I totally agree with you that there's not like classical features in those deep learning models for vision. But I think even there, there's a kind of decomposition because even making this assumption that there's different layers and you go through these simple layers, you're sort of like... you're, You're assuming like some kind of like composition that... One layer feeds into the next layer, and it's like a way of of breaking it down. The kind of visual features you get, like lower down, like are roughly kind of like what you know people come up with. The, well, we don't come up with them; what our visual system comes up with it for us. But yeah, but it's like maybe it's like the features aren't like what you would just make up. Like some of the data like informs with the architecture, like, kind of your priors for like what kind of future space you can entertain the data informs the futures you don't just make them up but excellent
1: i'm afraid we're out of time Mm -hmm. for any more questions i know there are many more so uh, thank you all very much for for coming this evening uh and for being an excellent audience and please join me in thanking our, our panel
0: that's it for this month thanks for listening if you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a big difference. And if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. As little as $1 a month, and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases, and digital freebies. Thanks.